Every once in a while, you get a chance to talk to a living legend. For people who love Shakespeare, one of those conversations is coming up. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. In the world of mid-20th century Shakespeare performance, it is hard to think of anyone as influential as Peter Brook. He started at the Royal Shakespeare Company with a production of Love's Labor's Lost in 1946. And for much of the next 70 years, his thinking and his productions have changed the way English-speaking directors in the West approach and stage Shakespeare. He directed John Gielgud in Measure for Measure in 1950, the Winner's Tale in 1952, and The Tempest in 1957. Laurence Olivier in Titus Andronicus in 1958, and Paul Schofield in King Lear in 1962. And he's perhaps best known for his production of A Midsummer Night's Dream in 1970 with John Kane, Francis de la Tour, Ben Kingsley, and Patrick Stewart. That production not only changed Shakespeare, but if you went to the theater in the 1970s, you saw its impact outside the Shakespeare world too. Shows like Pippin, Candide, Godspell, and others all drew from Brooks' revolutionary staging and design. When we first broadcast the interview you're about to hear in 2019, Peter Brook was 94 years old. If you thought he was slowing down at that age, you would be wrong. At the time of our interview, he had written and directed the play Battlefield, which premiered at the Young Vic in 2015, and he had written two books, Tip of the Tongue in 2017, and Playing by Ear, Reflections on Sound and Music in 2019. We are thrilled once again to bring you our interview with him now in a podcast episode we call My Age is as a Lusty Winter. Peter Brook is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. How did Shakespeare figure into your childhood? Your, your parents were immigrants from Russia, so did you come to Shakespeare through them or through school or how? My parents never. They came from Russia at just at the end of the revolution. And they certainly were so struck by the, the marvel for them of everything British. They felt that this was the heart of democracy, what they'd hoped the Russian Revolution would bring. And so they brought my brother and myself. We lived in Chiswick and we were brought up very, very firmly in the best English way. But I was an avid reader, and of course, very soon the works of Shakespeare came off the shelf and into my hands, and I was absolutely amazed. This of all the adventure stories, everything I'd read, they all disappeared in front of this marvel. At the same time, I had a little toy theater. It had a little curtain, then there was little painted sets, then I could make further myself, then there were little figures that you could push either with your finger or with long, wired sticks. And I decided that I would do, on my stage, I suppose I couldn't have been more than seven, I would do a production of Hamlet. And my poor parents, who were brought up in a feeling that you must never, never suppress any instinct of young children, this may be a budding genius. So when I announced to my parents, come down and watch, now I put out two seats, 
I stood behind the little stage with a copy of Hamlet in my hands, and in a little squeaky seven- or eight-year-old voice, I started reading the entire play. You can, it's impossible to imagine the anag- an agony for loving parents who have to sit still. I'm they can't sure. Do did, they, but, did they keep a straight face? I mean, how wonderful to hear your seven-year-old oh, do to be or not to be. Yeah. not Even they, they just listened, listened, and this little squeaky voice said, do we or not to be a request? And they sat through the... Oh, I think they must have sat there for about four hours, and then it came to a point when my father said, okay, Peter, that's enough. And that was the end of my acting career, but the beginning of a lifelong connection with Shakespeare. So there you know it all. <laughs> That's wonderful. You got that out of your system at age seven, <laughs> the, the acting bug. Yes. That's interesting me also because I think I read somewhere that you wanted to be a foreign correspondent when you grew up. Oh, yes. All I wanted, I wanted every sort of adventure and I rapidly got an impression that this was not life. And then reading the plays, like the plays of Shakespeare, I saw, I mean, there's a line that remains with me always in Coriolanus when he says, there is a world elsewhere. And that elsewhere went straight to my heart, and I thought, how can I get out of this provincial, bourgeois, London life and I suddenly thought, if I became a journalist and became a foreign correspondent, I would be sent to the most dangerous places, and that would be thrilling. How, what brought you back to theater then? Theater then was an exploration, and it was a meaning. I was just as interested in making movies, which was of living a hundred lives. I thought, if I go into imaginary stories which have a tremendous repercussion. The sense that one can live the best possible as a foreign correspondent, one life, but that if you go beyond it into the two areas, the theatre and the cinema, you can live within a week a hundred vicarious lives in parts of the globe you could never get to otherwise. That was wonderful. Well, you really did pack a lot into your your early your early twenties. In fact, by the time you were twenty, you were staging Shakespeare in Stratford with some of the finest actors oh, yes. of the day. I mean, John Gilgood, yes. Vivian Lee, Paul Schofield. Yeah, that's true. Lawrence Olivier. Could you tell me about working with Olivier? What what set him apart as a Shakespearean actor? No, that's an unfair question because I don't like to run people down. John Gielgud was someone of tremendous quality. Laurence Olivier was a man of tremendous skills, but they were totally different. They were on the surface friends, but each one brought a quality that the other one had nowhere in him. This royal throne of kings, this sceptered isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, demi-paradise, Gilgood was pure sensitivity. This happy breed of men, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea, which serves it in the office of a wall, 
or as a moat defensive to an house against the envy of less happier land. Whatever he spoke, it was, and this was, of course, the time when everything in the English theatre was conditioned by the sense of aristocracy and the upper classes. And John Gielgud had a natural aristocratic way of speaking, such a modest sensitivity that every line he spoke lived through this. This land of such dear souls, this dear, dear land, dear for her reputation through the world. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw and resolve itself into a dew, or that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. Olivier was just the opposite. He was a man, again, of amazing talents, who were doing the most dangerous things. I remember him throwing himself off a high platform to the horror of everyone, but above all, he loved showing off in a very subtle way that he was the cleverest and the best, the opposite of that natural modesty of John Gielgud. And yet within a month, let me not think on it. Frailty, thy name is woman. He always seemed a little cold or unfeeling to me. Oh, yes, well, that's... Uh, Except in rare moments of transcendence. No, but that is so true, because he was a cold person. His wife, Vivian, had all the sensitivity in the heart. Larry, essentially, and that's again where he's so different from Gilgood and from Alec Guinness at the same time, one would say that if you could open him up, you would see in the place of a heart a little icebox. But break my heart, for I must hold my tongue. He was a brilliant, I mean, he was like great pianists. He was a brilliant technician, but that was his limitation. You know, I'm curious, listening to you talk about this period in your life, back to the, the 50s and, and earlier whether, I mean, there you were, the young, brash ones in at the Royal Shakespeare Company. You were the young, rebellious ones. And I imagine you were chafing at the kind of work that was being done there and, and perhaps plotting what you would do when, when it was your time, when, no, you, no, no, when, when you were no, in no, charge. No, no. You're missing out the most essential link. After I had done various things in London that had attracted a few critics and people began to say this is a young man who's got some future and we should watch him, I suddenly got a letter from Sir Barry Jackson at the Birmingham Rep saying, we would like to invite you to do a production at the Birmingham Rep. Could you come and see us? And we could talk about it on such and such a date. And we could pay you for your production and for your time 25 pounds. This seemed unbelievable. It was possible to earn 25 pounds. So I went That's there. That's a fortune. I met this marvelous man of such deep openness, and he gave everything he could to encourage young people to develop in the theater. So he took over this uninteresting, crumbling theater in Birmingham 
and he used it. That was where he invited me on trust to do my first production, which was of Man and Superman. And the day I arrived, he called me into his office, and a very quiet young man was sitting there, and he said, I want you to meet Paul Schofield. Then I did various productions there, and I learned a great deal just by being part of it. And one day, Sir Barry said to me, I'm being invited to take over something that wasn't called the Royal Shakespeare Theatre. It was called, with this terrible name, the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre. That's already the kiss of death <laughs> on a production, if you know it's going to be a memorial. And he said, I'm going over to Stratford tomorrow to look at the theatre. Would you like to come with me? And then when we went over, he said, next season, I want to open with Love's Labour is Lost. Would you like to direct it? Just like that. And he said, Paul Schofield can be in it as well. And he then would get together some of the best actors from the West End, none of the old run-of-the-mill Shakespearean actors who were only made by then to season after season to play booming barons. And there I was with Paul Schofield and a couple of other actors that I already knew from Birmingham and given a completely free hand. And at once I was terribly influenced by painting. I would go to the museums everywhere. And the painter that touched me most was Watteau. And suddenly, even though that was not in any way the period accustomed for a play of Shakespeare, which were all the standard Elizabethan ruffs and collars, and I suddenly felt, looking uh -huh. at this play, this play has such a dancing music in it. If I could get somebody to do costumes resembling a Watu, this would be what I remember at the time, there was a beautiful word of T.S. Eliot, the objective correlative of the play. And we did a very, very simple set, just a little mound on the stage, and beautiful flowing Watto-like costumes. And so there was a natural grace in every movement on the stage, especially as they came over this little hill at the back, which meant them again to move gracefully over this surface, and which served wonderfully at the end when one saw death coming into this elegant light play, when the news is brought the princess that her father has died. And for that, the two the men lovers and the women lovers who were going to go and celebrate together agreed that they would meet again one year later because of the mourning for her father. And the last line of the play suddenly took on a very, very beautiful and moving quality because the play ends with the princess leaving for a year these new charming lovers that she and all the court had found. And the last line is that until next year, I'd forget the line exactly, but it becomes her just pointing two directions, you this way, we that way, and then a little music. And on that sad note, 
sad and yet joyful note, I discovered what in Watto had always touched me, because you feel in Watto that over all these open-air fêtes champêtres, there is a sad feeling that this cast lasts forever. Now I've given you a long answer to a I, simple question. Uh, well, I, I uh, thank you because I'm I'm getting such a wonderful window into your synthetic, organic creativity and the way your mind works, and I'm I'm also thinking. Uh, about what you have said about your work in your book, The Empty Space, about this whole post-war period that you were working in, that theater was all about reacting to the war. Yeah. So how so? Oh, yes, it was an escape. You know, all of us had been cooped up in our little island. If you weren't a soldier, you were just nowhere. And then the war ended, and suddenly one was allowed to travel. And I leapt on it, and I went at once to Portugal, and from Portugal I got on a plane and went for the first time to North Africa and went to Tangier. And when I came back, Sir Barry had asked me if in the following season I would do Romeo and Juliet. And for me, this was... Romeo wasn't that, again, dreamy, romantic play. It was a play of passion coming out of a climate not only of burning heat, but there's a line right at the beginning when the Capulets and the Montagues, the young people, meet in the street, and it says something like, and the dog days are here, and in this sweltering heat, they just, like today, they start fighting one another. And so it became the opposite of the Victorian dreamy Romeo and Juliet. It became something with very young lovers. I had insisted that for once, instead of middle-aged ladies, because they could speak the first, we had real couple of the right age. And so with that, we did a Romeo, and we had a set that was all made of sand, with light, brilliant light, burning down on it. And it was so unexpected that it was a disaster, howls of derision <laughs> from Stratford. All of the critics who said, this is a massacre. Where is the beauty of this play? The most beautiful play of Shakespeare, massacred by this violent little young man who doesn't know what he's doing. This is, uh, and although I'd been wonderfully received with Love's Labour's Lost, all wiped away with its fury. And after that, on the third night, there was always a little debate with the audience, and the manager of the, of the theater came to see me and said, after the play, I will take you in front of the audience, but they have to be able, as we always do, to have a question and answer with the director, but be prepared. You're going to have nothing but very, very terrible, angry questions. So I said, okay. I was led out, deadly hush in the audience, I stood there for a long time, and then suddenly, in about the tenth row, a lady got to her feet, quivering with anger. Ah, I thought, here we go. And with an umbrella in her hand or a stick, shaking it towards me, she said, Will Peter Brock of the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre explain to us how it is 
that in his production last night there was no light. And of course, I was very much into lighting effects, so I thought, God, what she going to say? Why there was no light in the ladies' cloakroom? <laughs> <laughs> Priorities. Yes. <laughs> Not poetry. <laughs> Well, that is a beautiful lead-in to my next question, which uh-huh. is I uh, about your landmark production of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream at Stratford in 1970 and also later in the West End. Now, now, Spirit, with a wonder you... Over the hill, 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 over the Clive Barnes wrote that Brooke has approached the play with a radiant innocence. He's treated the script as if it had just been written and sent to him through the mail. He staged it with no reference to the past, no reverence for tradition. And among other things, you place the action in a box of pure white. Not to tremble, not to fear. My life for yours. If you think I come hither as a lion... It were pity on my life. No. I'm no such thing. I'm a man, as other men are. And you also had ladders that went up and down the walls of the stage to this platform where actors looked down at the goings-on as if they were spectators at a fight or a bullfight or something. And all the fairy characters, Oberon, Titani, and Puck, you, you conceived as acrobats and jugglers, and they were actually spinning, balancing these spinning plates on long poles, and they swung on trapezes. It, it is all so sensual and very much a circus. What angel wakes me from my flowery bed? The finch, the sparrow, and the lark, the plain-song cuckoo gray, whose note for many a man doth mark, and dare not answer, uh, so, just a practical question, why circus acrobats? Well, it was very simple. They weren't circus acrobats, but it was something very different. And that was this. I would go every year, whenever I could, to America, and I would go to New York. And one time I went there, and what had they brought? They brought for the first time what was called the Chinese circus. And there, I saw young people doing amazing things, just leaping and juggling, and at the same time, holding a man holding a girl with his left hand and juggling with his right hand. I mean, it was something unbelievable. I came back to Stratford, and I said, what I would like to do with The Midsummer Night's Dream is to have a workshop, a period of preparation, when we can prepare things based on the point that we're trying to evoke spirits and none of us have ever seen a spirit. All we can say is that a spirit is invisible and to be invisible, the nearest we can get is in what I'd seen 
in these Chinese acrobats something so light that the body is transparent, the opposite of the muscular footballers that you see then and today. What thou seest when thou dost wake, do it for thy true love take. Love and languish for his sake, be it ounce or cat or bear, pard or boar with bristled hair in thine eye that shall appear. When thou wakest, it is thy dear. Wake when some vile thing is near. So I had marvellous actors like Ellen Howard playing Oberon, who could come down from on a trapeze, which you really felt for the king of the fairies, was absolutely right. I know a bank where the wild thyme blows, where oxlips and the nodding violet grows, quite over-canopied with luscious woodbine, with sweet musk roses and with eglantine. It all sounds so light and, as Clive Barnes said, innocent. But you also said that another war, Vietnam, brought you to the staging of this Midsummer. How did Vietnam lead you to, to this? When we'd done this, this terrible war started in Vietnam. And at the same time, I and all my friends there were deeply conscious that at the very moment when we were doing this beautiful, joyful evocation of fairies, the Americans were dropping napal, something that burns, that burns the villages and burns people, even and burns babies. And so I got together within the Royal Shakespeare Theatre at the time, a little group, and I said, we have a duty to perform of making a living form that can mean something to audiences and in which you can really feel that at the very moment that we're just joyfully enjoying the privilege of being actors in London and the West End, keeping right out of this, we decided to evolve something through improvisation, through meeting journalists just back from Vietnam. I mean, I went to America to meet the widow of the young man who had set himself on fire in front of the Pentagon. And with all that, the play that evolved had this very simple title, which was also a pun, because it was called U.S. And it was called U.S., meaning them, the Americans, that it's easy to sit back comfortably in London and say, look what those bastards are doing. It's about us. We are doing nothing to stop them. A form with satirical songs, a satirical text. So there's the story of the link between the Midsummer Night's Dream and U.S. Uh, 
right around the time that you did Midsummer and leading into U.S., you moved to Paris and founded the International Center for Theater Research with your collaborator, Marie-Hélène Estienne. That's good. (laughs) What... (laughs) Thank you. What prompted the move? Very simply, I made it a condition in the Royal Shakespeare Theater. I said, what I need is to have... That's never happened before here. We need a little experimental unit where we can explore new ways and new approaches, not just to Shakespeare, but on every sort of way of making theatre. And we called this little experimental group the Theatre of Cruelty, which was a phrase from the French writer Antoine Artaud, who said, when I talk about cruelty, I don't mean cruelty to other people. I mean cruelty to myself. I take risks, and sometimes they burn inside me. And so with this tiny group, we made many, many experiments and then discovered that the most important thing of all was to go beyond the barriers. We still were brought up in a post-colonial society and we began to see that this is the worst barrier of all, the color barrier which nobody yet was really aware of. And we began to see in America, yes, There was Martin Luther King. There were movements of people who were really beginning to feel that this is terrible, the way we treat black people as though they're not equal to white-skinned people. And so with this, we began to explore. And nobody in England was particularly interested in this sort of exploration. But in Paris, this was already an international city. And Jean-Louis Barrault had approached me and said, would I do a workshop on Shakespeare? I said, I'll do a workshop on Shakespeare. Name it as you want, if I can bring together something nobody has ever done. Actors from different races, from different languages, and we'll do a workshop. In this, I met actors like Yoshi Oida, who came from Japan, and we began to improvise with people who had no common language, just with gesture or sound or just very simple words. And then Ted Hughes came and wrote things for us and out of this it was so clear that the possibility this work couldn't exist in those days in London. And so sadly, I started going with my wife, Natasha, to Paris and would come back to London until the time when we felt this endless travelling didn't make sense and that we would take apartment in Paris and gradually one thing led to the other and there were too many things that were so deeply close to us that... In the end, we just stayed in Paris. You have talked so fascinatingly about being an early pioneer of colorblind casting and what, how you think of it, which is... No, you uh, mustn't... Not, excuse me, but you mustn't use this uh, phrase, colorblind. It's on the contrary. Color welcome. Oh, that's a lovely phrase. Thank you. Colorblind means... You know, it's, it's very snobbish. We're just 
We know that it's your disability, you poor people, but we're closing our eyes, and that's disgusting. So on the contrary, we uh. have our eyes wide open, welcoming the fact that you're, this one is light brown and this one's dark brown, and this poor little one is white. Let me rephrase, because you're absolutely right, and I think that I'm going to promote that that phrase from now on. You have been such an early pioneer of color welcome casting. Yeah. And the way that you've talked about it is that it's not so much at all about color or race. What it is is what makes for good theater, that mm. there is a actor is a storyteller yes. who transcends their visible physicality, their body. And yeah. that, and, and you can say it much better than I can because you have this theory of, of how what happens in a theater is the space between the actor and the role, a silence yeah. in that space. Yeah. You said it very well. <laughs> Do you mean by that that... It's in that silence is where you, our imagination no, enters in, or the invisible no, becomes visible. I'll tell you something that linked to the fact that from the very start, everything that we did was inseparable from improvisations. And in an improvisation, you evoke anything. Somebody starts, there are five people, and we say, improvise today on fear. And at once, one of them will go on, hand and foot, and become a lion. And another one will become a panther and attack the lion. And then that comes to a point when it's repetitive, they have no more inspiration, I would intervene and say, right, now, let's start again differently. Someone would come in very quietly, look around, and say, now that I'm alone, there's no danger. And at that moment, somebody would knock on the door. I mean, these were little improvisations that arose by themselves. And out of that language of improvisation, I saw that this was exactly what I was doing night after night with my young children when in the bedtime stories, I was the narrator. And I could, just with a word, it was sufficient to say, I'm descending from a plane on a parachute and I look down, and I see the jungle. The children would be transfixed. I would have been do nothing. And then when we started preparing the Mahabharata and I go to India, I would see in the courtyards a storyteller, night after night, perhaps 300 people sitting there, avidly watching, and the storyteller, the story had one gadget. He had a stick, and the stick could suddenly be a sword, and at once, in the Mahabharata, there are two armies facing one another, so holding the stick sideways, he puts it in his left hand, and there's one army, puts it in his right hand, it's the other army, and they're moving slowly towards one another, just a movement of the stick, and the imagination fills in the rest. And so then, out of that, it began to be clear that one can really evoke anything at all if one finds the way of recognizing that whatever play we're doing, and to this day I use that jargon, we are storytellers. Peter Brook, 
I never saw your 1970 Midsummer, but this conversation has been completely transformative, and I will remember it forever. Thank oh. you so much. Oh. Well, it's a pleasure talking to you. It takes two to make a conversation, and if you don't feel that the other person is with you, then nothing comes. So thank you. A pleasure. Peter Brook has won multiple Tony and Emmy Awards, a Laurence Olivier Award, the Premium Imperiale, and the Prix Italia. He has been called our greatest living theater director. His book, Playing by Ear, Reflections on Sound and Music, was published by the Theater Communications Group in 2020. When this interview was first released, Nick Hearn Books had just released in ebook format Brooks' revolutionary 1968 book, The Empty Space, as well as an audiobook of his 2013 The Quality of Mercy, read by actor Michael Pennington. Peter Brook was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, My Age is as a Lusty Winter, was produced under the supervision of Garland Scott. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Alan Lear at the Sound Company Studios in London. If you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, and if you're looking for a way to let other people know about it, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That really is the best way to help. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore. <laughs>